Good morning. It's great to see you. Um, I know we got folks in the theater and online over at South Hill. So glad you're all here. Welcome. Welcome to Westgate. If we've never met, my name's Jay, and I'm part of the team here. Really glad you are here. Um, if you're new to our church, you are jumping in uh, at the end of a journey that this church family has been on for two and a half years. We have been slowly making our way through Matthew's Gospel, the very first book in what most people call the New Testament, this writer Matthew, his biography of Jesus. And this final portion that will lead us to Easter, we have entitled, the ser- we title our series sometimes, we've entitled it, It Is Finished. And some of you are like, yes, it is finally finished. Shame on you. This is the word of God. We should grieve. No, um, honestly, I know it's been a long trek, but what I've heard from most of you is like, man, this has been beautiful. It's been beautiful for me to be able to go slowly through the Jesus story. Whatever you do or don't believe about Jesus, it's just been so profoundly um, helpful to me and from what I've heard from you uh, to many of us to be able to slowly journey through the Jesus story. But it's called It Is Finished from now until Easter because... The work is finished. And we'll talk about that more today and the rest of this series leading again up to Easter. But let's begin today uh, with this. I want to show you an image. This is a painting by a late 19th century Belgian painter named James Enzor. James Enzor painted this painting in 1889, and it is called Christ's Entry into Brussels. This is Enzor's way of taking the story that we just heard read aloud and mapping it on to late 19th century Brussels. It is what many Christians call the triumphal entry of Jesus. Now, it's it's a modernization of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he maps it on to 1889 Brussels. But here's the thing. Enzor is critiquing the story here. This painting is not a celebration of the story we just read. It's a mockery of the story. In fact, I would would ask you, where is Jesus in the painting? I mean, you can find him if you look a while. He's in the middle with sort of a, a, a dull yellow halo over his head, but he is difficult to find. Jesus is lost in this sort of Mardi Gras-like celebration. Now, James Enzor, not just in this painting, but in many paintings, he was a critic. He was critiquing, at least in this painting, he was critiquing lots of things, political systems, he was critiquing the art world, and he was specifically critiquing religion. What Enzor is doing here is taking the story that many Christians call Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and he's making a mockery of it, essentially saying that whole triumph thing is a farce. Jesus is just like a small bit character and a much larger story that is unfolding. And one of the reasons Enzor is critiquing the story we are in today is because the story on the surface does in fact feel like a farce. Those of you who are familiar with the, the Passion Week story, the story that begins in the passage we're in today, what you know is that within a week of Jesus' entry into the city, what will happen to him? He will be crucified. 
He'll be arrested and tried and tortured and crucified and killed. And Enzor's point is this, that there's nothing triumphant about his entry into the city. It's a death sentence, and that's the painting. Now, it makes sense in many ways, because again, on the surface, Jesus' triumphal entry is anything but triumphant. He is marching to his own death. And here's the thing, he knows he's marching to his own death. So to call it a triumphal entry is a little bit strange. But for Matthew, Jesus' biographer, this story is a pivotal moment. So I know we, just, we heard it read in the scripture reading, but let's just read it again one more time. And I'll read it in full, a couple additional verses. Matthew 21. As they, Jesus and the disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said, Two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, her colt by her, and untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt full of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches. These are palm branches. More on that in a moment. From the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed them shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, which is a messianic phrase. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now again, this moment in Jesus' story is actually, we're a little bit early here, we're about a month early Um, This moment is celebrated by Christians all around the world on Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter, which is actually exactly a month from now. And this entry into Jerusalem is also the beginning of what is the most important and difficult week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. It leads to the central moment in human history when Jesus is again arrested, tortured, crucified, killed, and buried all of it leading to resurrection on Easter morning. This opening scene, though, as Jesus rides in on the donkey and the people shout, Hosanna, son of David, and they lay their cloaks and they wave the palm branches, all of this is actually the scene of victory and kingship, which makes no sense on the surface because he is going to die. One scholar describes the scene this way, that in this scene, the people are recreating the scene of a newly anointed king who would lead a successful military campaign against his enemies. This is really important, you guys, 
Because what is happening is Jesus enters the city and the people lay down their cloaks and wave their palm branches and call him the son of David. What is happening is that the people, the crowds, the masses believe that this man, this prophet from Nazareth is actually going to come and bring victory as the new king. That he would overthrow, bless you, that he would overthrow the oppressors. Bless you again. And that is, in fact, what Jesus would go on to do. But his victory as king would not come by way of swords laying waste to Roman oppressors. His victory as king would come by way of sacrificial love, laying himself down to death. Now, this sort of surprising, subversive victory that Easter tells us about is actually foreshadowed here. In fact, if you, some of you have heard the term like the upside down kingdom of God. And all that means when people throw that phrase around is that things in God's kingdom economy are upside down. You hear it in the teachings of Jesus. Again, if you've been with us for the last two and a half years, you've felt this over and over again in Matthew's gospel. That the first shall be last. That the rich are poor and the poor are rich. All of those sorts of things. This is the upside down kingdom. And this scene is a visual representation of the upside down kingdom of God. In fact, Matthew in the story quotes an ancient prophecy from Zechariah, this ancient obscure book in what we call the Old Testament. I'll read you the prophecy, Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Now, for those of us who've been in church world for a while, we just kind of assume, oh yeah, it's, beautiful. it's a beautiful text. This makes no sense, particularly in the ancient world of kings and empires. Victorious kings did not ride in lowly on donkeys. We'll see more of that in a moment. The humility that Christ embodies as he enters Jerusalem and throughout the gospel stories, really, we can't, we, this cannot be lost on us. It is shocking. This is a shocking, jarring vision of what a king should or should not be. Kings in the ancient world did not enter cities lowly on donkeys. They didn't do that. And what's more is Jesus seems to instruct his followers to embody this sort of shocking humility. What does he say in Mark chapter 10? Jesus called them, the disciples, together, and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The scene of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is shocking because kings did not enter with such humility. But what is more jarring for you and me 
is that Jesus asks his followers, those of us in the room who claim Jesus is king, he asks us in our everyday lives to embody this same sort of low, riding on a donkey, humility. And this is antithetical to our world. I mean, just open your phone and scroll your Instagram. Lowly, riding on a donkey, is not what is celebrated on your feed. So how do we do this? Um, There's a wonderful book, not a Christian book, just a wonderful book by a social psychologist named Daryl Van Tongren that came out last year. The book is called Humble, beautiful title, right? And he's a researcher, and he actually cites a variety of longitudinal studies that have all sort of been um, compressed to come up with these like three universal features of humility. And as I read the book, I realized, oh my gosh, social science is just catching up to what Jesus embodied 2,000 years ago. Let me show you. All of the studies come down to three key attributes of humility. The first is that accurate self-assessment is required for genuine humility. Accurate self-assessment. We might understand this as knowing yourself or know yourself. This is why Jesus was able to embody such humility. Let me show you. John chapter 13, the scene where Jesus is gonna wash his disciples' feet. You know how that passage begins? We all see him in our minds with a towel wrapped around washing his disciples' feet. Look at how the story begins. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Okay, let's just stop there for a moment. Jesus knew that he was the man. Like Jesus knew all authority had been placed under him. He knew he had power. He knew his relationship to God the Father. He knew that he was about to go and die and give his life to rescue the world. He knew all of this. He had an accurate self-assessment. He knew himself. So then what does he do? He got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he does the work of a servant. He pours water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus' humility is not birthed from a lack of confidence in his identity. It's actually the opposite. Jesus is able to come riding into the city lowly and gentle on a donkey because he was so confident in who he was. He exudes humility from a place of accurate self-assessment. This is the same for you and me. You cannot will your way to lowering yourself beneath others by whipping yourself. It's like, oh, I'm so terrible, I suck, like I'm just, I don't deserve, that's not humility. Humility is a resolute confidence in your identity as a son or a daughter of God, beloved and cherished, knowing that there is not a thing you could do to earn God's love and favor and goodness and grace. It is already yours. And from that place, you and I, like Christ, 
can wrap towels around our waist and wash the feet of those in our midst. Jesus also exudes the second universal feature of humility, which is the ability to regulate ego. The ability to regulate ego. Daryl Van Tongren, he notes this as the ability to check yourself, in the words of the theologian Ice Cube, before you wreck yourself. (laughs) Philippians 2. Jesus made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. I mean, if there isn't a regulation of ego, like, like this is it, right? This is the definition, definition of regulating your ego. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He regulates his ego and intentionally humbles himself. By what? By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. How do we exude the way of Jesus, the humility of Christ in our own lives? We regulate ego. We tap into that part of ourselves that is willing in trust and in faith to live in obedience to what God by his spirit is leading us to do, to embody and exude the way of his son in all things, in all relationships, in all circumstances. And finally, the third um, universal trait of humility that researchers have found is an others-focused orientation. An others-focused orientation. This is the call to go beyond yourself, to go beyond yourself. I mean, this is what Jesus does, right? Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, do not let this verse just kind of like skim over the surface of your heart and mind. This is profound. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Not after you got your act together, while you were still sinners. Now, receiving the gift that is offered by Jesus' death and resurrection, that is on you, that is up to you. But think about this for a moment. Jesus' death occurred, his physical death on the cross happened two millennia ago. And he did this, whether you believe this or not, whether you think, some of us in the room are like, dude, Jay, I'm not a Christian. I'm like still navigating things. This whole concept of this ancient Jewish rabbi dying and coming back to life makes no sense to me. First, if that's you, one, I am so grateful you're here. And I get it. I spent many years of my life thinking that same thing. I understand. It's a, it's a radical, even ridiculous idea that a Jewish rabbi would die and come back to life. But here's the thing. Even if you don't think Jesus is alive, the reality is it is undeniable that this Jewish rabbi died at least believing that he was laying his life down for you. I mean, think about that. 
even if he's still dead, regardless of what the world and culture has told you you are, no matter how many voices tell you, you do not measure up. 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish rabbi in the ancient Near East who literally gave his life thinking that he was doing it for you. So do not tell me that your life doesn't matter or that it is not valuable. And it's not just this Jesus who did this 2,000 years ago. There are followers of Jesus, numbering in the millions and now the billions, who believe also that Jesus died, not just for them, not just for me, but for you. And he did this while we were still a mess. He goes beyond himself for the sake of others without any guarantee of return on investment. In fact, what was guaranteed was utter disappointment. Like Jesus knew that not everyone would say, oh my goodness, what a gift. Yes, he knew that even post-resurrection, there would be utter rejection, and yet he does it anyways. This is humility. Andrew Murray generations ago, wrote this, that his humility, Jesus' humility, became our salvation, and our salvation, his salvation, is our humility. Now, here's the thing. Jesus' humility, the humility you and I are called to embody, it should not fool us into believing that he was without power. His humble nature does not mean he was actually, literally lowly without power, just like, oh, like, I don't know. This is sort of all I have. That is not what is happening in this story. His humility, Jesus' humility, is actually an expression of otherworldly power that looks different than worldly power. Let me explain. I'll show you a map here. This is the map of the story. This is Jesus, this is the route Jesus would have taken According to the story, he travels from Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, and he enters Jerusalem. Now, I want you to just keep this map in your mental mind, um, because in a moment, I'm going to tell you a story of somebody else. But um, you will notice Jesus enters the city from the east. He's east of the city, and then he enters Jerusalem from the east. Now, what is really interesting is that at the same time as Jesus was entering on a donkey with palm branches and cloaks laid on the street from common people, on the western side of the city, there was another figure also entering the city. From the west, a man named Pontius Pilate was entering the city. Now, many of you who know the Easter story, you know Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor who ruled over Jerusalem and the surrounding region at the time. And Pilate lived, his residence was about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem, which is why he entered the city from the west. And Pilate came to Jerusalem at this time of year every year because this time of year when this story is taking place is during the Jewish Passover festival. Some of you are familiar with um, that story from the Exodus and all of that. Now, Pilate, the Roman governor, would enter the city, Jerusalem, during the Passover every year because there was, it was a time of civil unrest. Now, here's the thing about Pilate's entrance into the city. It was spectacle. 
Like when Roman government officials would enter cities that they had conquered, it was like this giant processional of soldiers with spears and swords. The soldiers would like clang their heavy shields to create the sort of loud shock and awe. Um, Pilate would have ridden into the city, not on a donkey, but on like a big, majestic, mighty stallion, which was a symbol of power and authority. Soldiers, again, would have been banging their shields. It would have been this massive spectacle, this giant processional. And this was really important to the Roman Empire because Rome, as an empire, was built on spectacle and propaganda. It was big and ornate and aggressive and loud. And some of you know this already, but the Roman government at the time, it wasn't just a political structure, it was a religious structure. And so Caesar, the king of Rome, the emperor of Rome, he wasn't just considered a political leader, he was considered divine. The, Caesar's, the Caesar was considered the son of God who would bring, bring peace and prosperity to all people. And like all other religions, the Roman government had propaganda language that would shape and propagate their belief system. Let me show you some of the most common Roman propaganda language of Jesus' day. They would say and inscript all over the empire phrases like, Caesar is Lord. They would declare, Caesar is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does this sound familiar? The first followers of Jesus, in an act of utter courage and bravery, they would co-opt this propaganda language from the empire, and they would use it to boldly declare what? Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. So I'll show you this next image just to juxtapose what is happening in this story. Pilate enters the West on a mighty stallion with soldiers and a processional with swords and spears. Jesus enters from the East on a donkey with everyday people with branches. Worldly power is big and it is loud and it's ornate and it is filtered and it looks beautiful and it looks like everyone's got it together and beneath the surface of that, beneath the thin veneer and facade, it is deeply insecure and afraid. But the otherworldly power of God's kingdom looks like Jesus. It is humble, it's gentle, it is steady, and it is secure. You know, I've, I've really, I've been struck for many years by this interesting juxtaposition of Jesus entering the city from the east while Pilate enters the city from the west. One of the reasons it's always struck me as such a beautiful image that Jesus enters from the east. He, he starts east and then he enters from the east into the city. One of the reasons that visual has always been so profoundly beautiful to me is because when sin enters the human story, way back in Genesis chapter three, some of you know this story, a good God creates a good world, and then humans rebel against God and his design for his glory and our good. 
And what happens in the story? I'll read it to you, Genesis 3. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden, this is humankind, to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out because of sin, rebellion against God, what happens? God placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, it's interesting from this moment on throughout the biblical story over and over again, eastward movement. Like you see all these random characters fleeing east. And over and over again throughout the Bible, eastward movement is often seen as a movement away from God's presence or away from God's plan. Now, I don't know if this was intentional, but the the imagery has never left me. Jesus journeys from the east toward Jerusalem. And his arrival into the city as this new sort of king, I think, is really powerful symbolism. It symbolizes that in many ways that what went wrong in the garden, the effects of sin and death that kept humans from being at home directly in God's presence, that is being changed. The story is being rewritten. Though our sin and brokenness kept us from Eden, God's beautiful presence directly with humans, our original home, the place of human flourishing in the presence of God, Jesus comes from the east. He enters the city to be arrested and tortured and crucified and killed. And why does he do it? He does it to bring us home. When we were banished eastward because of sin, Jesus enters the city from the east to bring us home, or better yet, when we could not get home, to bring home to us. I'm gonna invite Chris and the team to come back up. We're gonna sing and respond here um, together in a moment. Uh, my daughter, Harper, she's um, eight now. She's almost nine, but um, uh, we put her in school, in preschool, when she was three, which is weird to think about. It was like half a decade ago. I was just looking at a picture of it um, the other day. She looked so little. I have a picture of her with her little you know, backpack on her very first day of preschool. You know, she had spent three years of her life being home. Um, when mom and dad were working, it was always one grandma or the other grandma. She was always home. Like all she knew of home was home, right? That's home. This physical place where we live, that was home. And I remember we had prepped her, like, Harper, you're gonna go to school now, you're a big girl now, but she was three. She was like, what? I guess, I don't know. And we had visited the school many times and done play stuff there, and she was like, I like it, it's cool. But it was always with mom and dad in the background. And I remember the very first day of taking her to preschool, knowing that I was about to drop her off for like six, seven hours, I'm prepping her in the car. She's super happy. And I'm like, oh, this is gonna go great. She's so happy. And then we get to the school. I snap a picture and her face is like not that happy anymore. Like she's starting to realize like, oh, this is for real. You're not, you're not kidding. You're gonna literally leave me here with these strange people. So we walk in. I pray for her. I hug her like, Harper, you're gonna do great. You're a big girl now. 
And some of you who've had little children, you've had this experience. I walk her all the way in. She is clinging so tightly to my leg. I have to like unclutch her arms from my leg. I take her backpack off. I take her to her teacher. And her teacher is so sweet. She's like, oh, we're gonna do circle time. Harper, sit down. These are all your new friends. And she's like, she just keeps running back to me. And I kneel down, I kiss her on the cheek, Harper, you're gonna be okay, daddy's gonna pick you up a little bit later, all of that stuff, and she is just wailing. And so literally, her teachers have to hold her, and I have to walk out with my daughter, like, just hands extended, where are you going? Like, how can you leave me here? It was all the normal stuff, right? Tears and separation anxiety and all of that stuff. And something had to happen in her. Like that day, she had to come to a visceral, embodied reality. She had to trust for seven hours that though she was in this place that is not home, that is dramatically unfamiliar, where mom and dad, who have always cared for her, always protected her, always loved her, always kept her safe, they are no longer here. And it was complete disorientation in her heart and mind. And then at 3.30 that afternoon, I showed up and she ran to me like she has never run to me before or since. She ran to me and we embraced and I saw in her face the relief of knowing that when she couldn't get home, home had come to her. C.S. Lewis says that it is not in trying, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this, I can't. Maybe today you find yourself living east of Eden. Maybe you have made decisions or you have done things or things have been done to you where you feel so far from God. Or maybe you're here today because you're just desperately searching for joy or for purpose or for meaning or for significance or something else to make you feel alive again. Or maybe you're here today and when you're honest with yourself, your life has been oriented around worship at the altar of worldly power or false kings. Or maybe you're here today because you're just barely hanging on and you are losing hope. Maybe you're here today and you feel far from home. When we could not get home, Jesus, our humble, and gentle and powerful king comes from the east, riding on a donkey, and he brings home to us. Amen? Let's stand and sing together.